Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Miss the show, no problem, on point, and on the podcast. What some might find creepy, others see as creative. But for a Niagara homeowner, a coffin full of flowers on her front and back lawn have now landed her a pretty pricey ticket and orders from Niagara to get rid of it. Why should she? We'll also talk about why it's taken so long to get Indigenous learning updated in the Ontario curriculum. There have been recommendations out since 2015 in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as to what needs to be taught. And yet here we are six years later with boards dragging their feet and the unions pushing back. Let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste I've been around for a long, long year Stole many a man's soul and faith This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio If it's safe enough to call an election, then Trudeau should have no choice but to allow media direct access to him Hello there, Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, July 14th, getting through the week on a nice, quick pace, which is a good thing. And while many of us are now in complete summer holiday mode, when you go to Ottawa behind the scenes, the election politicians claim they don't want obviously well underway. I mean, the Prime Minister's not even hiding the secret that he's no longer hiding in the cottage. He's out in the country throwing money all over the place. And he can say he doesn't want an election, but he fools no one. There's no question he wants the writ to drop as soon as possible, you know, while polls have him in majority territory. While voters aren't paying attention and people are feeling better and clearly forgiving of his government's dismal scandal-plagued performance. So he'll be taking a walk to the Governor General's office in a matter of weeks and he'll use the excuse that he can't get anything done. You know, the opposition just won't let him. And that's just not true. Jagmeet Singh can't quit him. He will do whatever Justin Trudeau wants, so he can get lots done. The reality is, Trudeau cannot stand not having full power to do whatever he wants. You know, he hates that he has to answer to anyone, and more than anything else, hates that a minority government can expose liberal scandals and hold them to account. Now, you know, elections are expensive. Let's not mince words on this. They're very expensive. Not just for the taxpayers, but it costs the media millions of dollars because you have to staff these things, cover things off, and um, and they're not cheap. And doing it in the summer is never ideal because a lot of folks take vacation at that point. But elections are also the foundation of our democracy. And if we're heading into one that is very unnecessary right now, then there should be some rules. And those are that if it's safe enough to have an election that the media must have physical access to the politicians. They must be able to scrum the leaders, especially Justin Trudeau, who, if you ask me, has had far too much control of the message for the last 16 months, you know, because of uh, the pandemic, which has worked very well for him. We've barely got a functioning parliament. 
You know, Trudeau's been able to come out of his cottage weekly, give these campaign-style answers completely unchallenged, and then he is seen as the guy giving out money and saying all the right things. And that's literally because reporters can't get access to the guy. They can't shove a mic in his face. They can't push him off his manicured talking points. I mean, thanks to COVID, the prime minister's office has been able to control who asks what, and that's because reporters only get access by the phone, which then gets muted the second they try to challenge these non-answers Trudeau always gives. And if you're a reporter that isn't like, you're not getting a question at all. And this has to stop. It actually should have stopped a long time ago. I don't know why we are entertaining this. If it's safe enough to call an election, then having physical access to the prime minister should not be an issue. Period. Full stop. Otherwise, reporters should refuse to cover any of his events or any of his liberal MP events. And hey, it would tr- it would serve Trudeau well, just fine, you know, if he could hold the election and do all sorts of Zoom appearances, you know, be seen as the celebrity he is and say all the right things. I mean, the last thing he wants is a reporter in his face. And I've covered plenty of elections over the last 23 years, so I can tell you how crucial it is that a reporter be able to get access to a politician because that's when they don't have a teleprompter. You know, they don't have the protection of a mute button. And it's really only when Trudeau is actually challenged in person by reporters where he gets himself into a lot of trouble. So I kind of went through today on the Internet. I was like, oh, I'll go and find some examples of, you know, where he walks himself into trouble and when he's with reporters. And here are a couple of prime ones. How could it not have occurred to you that that might not have been okay? No. Uh, the fact is, we work uh, the... Uh, sorry, let me just try to reorder, reorder the thoughts. We um, worked with uh, the, the uh, uh, lobby conflict of interest commissioner. The allegations in the Globe story this morning are false. Uh, neither the current nor the previous attorney general Uh, was ever directed by me or by anyone in my office uh, to uh, take a a decision uh, in this matter. Are you saying categorically there was absolutely no influence or any pushing whatsoever in this? The allegations reported in the story are false. Uh, At no time did I or uh, my office uh, direct uh, the current or previous Attorney General uh, to make uh, any particular decision in this matter. But not necessarily direct, Prime Minister. Was there any sort of influence whatsoever? Yeah. As I've said, at no time did we uh, direct the Attorney General, uh, current or previous, uh, to uh, take any decision whatsoever in this matter. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that's a lie. And it's really only because reporters could put a mic to his face that that lie was put on record because they kept asking over and over and over again on the Bob Fife story about SNC and whether or not his government interfered with a decision made by then Attorney General uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould. The first question was a question about the Aga Khan. And as as you heard him, he, he couldn't, I've got to reorder my thoughts. So it, it, it matters. It matters when you get up into a politician's face because they don't have that barrier of safety. But even on basic questions, when Trudeau is off script, he is gaftastic. What do you and your family do to cut back on plastics? 
Uh, we uh, uh, we have uh, recently switched to drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a uh, plastic. Uh, sorry, away from plastic towards uh, paper, um, like drink box water bottles, sort of things. Trust me, I could have put dozens of these things together. He's had so many disastrous, you know, disastrous moments when pushed off script. So, yes, reporters have to be able to get access. And so when this election is called, the media must demand, we the public must demand that it be covered like any other. And since the leaders, the reporters are vaccinated and the prime minister's boasting that we're roaring back, he's got no excuse as to why it can't be. Otherwise, if it's too dangerous, then he has no business pushing for an election he pretends he does not want to have, and we shouldn't let him. I'd say that Rob Zombie's probably perfect as an introduction to this next story, because he likes all things creepy. I don't know if you've ever seen a Rob Zombie movie, but whew. He does them well. Let me just tell you that. I do like a good horror film. Um, you know, beauty is, they say, in the eye of the beholder. And so I found this story interesting because this St. Catherine's couple decided that a coffin full of flowers on both the front and the back lawn um, would be their creation. Creepy or not, they love it. And it got lots of looks, certainly by passerbys. Most, however, didn't have a problem with it, except, of course, there's always that one neighbor. There's always that one neighbor who has a problem with you. Nonetheless, they complained to the city of St. Catharines, which then came out and gave the couple a ticket saying, you know, the coffin violates the bylaw. And then you say, well, what bylaw? And apparently it's the bylaw where a disposal of waste law that deems refuse, waste, loose rubbish, and debris on lands and unkept yards a nuisance that could create a health and safety hazard for the public. And I mean, I'm like, the hell's, what, what is unhealthy about this? It may be ugly, it may not be to your taste, but in no way was the coffin planter, um, you know, debris flying around or causing a nuisance. It's not like they put a decomposing body in it. And nonetheless, um, the story's gotten a lot of attention, and it looks like the folks at St. Catherine's Law Enforcement, which we, by the way, contacted several times to ask some questions about this, got spooked. Because late today they said, uh, no further action will be taken. Christina Calbury is a hairstylist, horror buff, and... Mom-to-be, or soon mom-to-be. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. I don't think um, you probably thought that this would kind of take on a life as it, it as it has, but it has. I mean, you love horror movies. You've told your husband, hey, I want a coffin. Uh, he found you one, and, and this was the beginning of your story. Yeah, it's literally just as simple as that. So what, like, what, what gave you the idea, before we get into all the bylaw and the fallout of this, what gave you the idea of, hey, I've got an idea, we'll um, get some coffins and we'll put them in the yard and fill it with, um, with plants? Um, well, actually, um, I was just browsing through um, Facebook Marketplace and I came across uh, this woman's ad. She was selling some coffins and mind you, they're not like beautiful, like they're not like, you know, laminated, they're not, you know, they're not the ones that most people would buy, you know, for that situation um they're just kind of older vintage there's no lining inside of them they're just it's just bare wood um but she was selling them anyway i told um my boyfriend about it and he said you know what are you thinking about doing with it and 
I said, why not do a flower bed? And he goes, well, I was kind of thinking the same thing. (laughs) So we got the one in the backyard first, did it up, absolutely loved it. He suggested uh, contacting the woman again, seeing if she had any more left and doing the front yard. So that's what we did. (laughs) And then the problem started. And it wasn't really a big problem. It's like one person in the neighborhood took exception to it. And I mean, look, I've seen the picture. I might not do it. Um, Our listeners may not think to do this, but I didn't really see the problem of it being what the bylaw, um, you know, officer had said, which was that it could be a danger to health. I mean, it wasn't just laying around. It was actually fairly neatly put on the front lawn, planted with um, plants. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's been, it's only been in the front and the back. I mean, I think we've only had them for maybe no longer than a month and a half. And then uh, the other day, um, two days ago, I believe it was, I received a letter in the mail from the bylaw um, people of the city of St. Catharines. And it was kind of silly to me, you know, one person makes a complaint and that's how they responded without even actually knowing how they're supposed to respond to this situation. Right. And did they give you any kind of say as to like an explanation? I mean, they just said, here's your ticket, get rid of it. And not just the front one, but the one in the backyard, which makes even less sense to me, because who cares what you do in your backyard? Well, and that's the thing, too, right? No, they um, so they issued uh, this letter, but there was no um, no talk of a, a ticket at all, actually. They just said we need to remove it by July 19th. And, uh, you know, the letter basically said, hopefully you get it done. And that was basically it. But they didn't cite the subtitle to this to this infraction. Like they just said it was a waste by law infraction. That was it. But doing extensive research and having plenty of people through social media and people I know, they all looked into it as well and nobody could find anything that was even remotely close to what we had going on here. So it was kind of feel like it was almost like a a waste of the time, mainly for the city, to be completely honest with you. Well, bureaucrats somehow have a a way of doing those kinds of wasteful (laughs) topics. But, um, you know, know, there are a lot of people that do some, you know, different things with their front lawns. I mean, you'll see people who have giant um, uh, teddy bear collections or, you know, there's a lot of people who keep up some Halloween decorations year-round. So people do what they do, um, whether the neighbors like it or not. Uh, but this kind of just took on a life of its own. But we, we did contact the St. Catharines, um, you know, by law enforcement officer. We got kind of thrown around between Niagara and St. Catharines. Neither seemed to want to kind of take, uh, you know, take the lead on this thing. And, and obviously something happened because we finally got a response back this afternoon saying uh, there will be no further action taken. So how did that come to be? Um, well, I've, uh, I was in contact with them the day that I received the letter. Um like I said, wasn't really getting any answers. They all just told me that they're going to have to contact their legal team to see what they can do. And um, that was through the bylaw. That was the mayor of St. Catharines, that was the MPP's office. It was pretty much everyone's response. So over the last two days, as soon as I read that letter, actually, I started messaging these people, calling these people. And then I called them back yesterday. No return calls called them this morning, no return calls. But when I did call them this morning, I did let them know that we have been in three newspapers. I was on three radio stations this morning. We're on CHCH News this afternoon, this evening, and now with uh, you guys tonight. So I don't know if they kind of got scared about it and realized that they didn't really have a leg to stand on. I'm I'm not too sure what uh, changed their minds, but I'm pretty sure it was because we didn't 
back down. Yeah, I mean, you fought the law, and um, and you actually did win on this one. And look, again, it, it, what your taste is might not be to someone else, but I just really didn't think uh, from the photographs that I saw that there was really any big issue with it. Um, and so are you going to keep it, and are you going to add to your, um, add to your decor? Um, I mean... Not maybe like it's not like we're gonna go buy another coffin or something. <laughs> we're not gonna do that. We have it pretty much set up how we like it. Um, we do. Um, my boyfriend does most of the landscaping. I'm seven months pregnant with my third, mm-hmm. and so I'm pretty useless. <laughs> I would not say you're useless. However, um, you know you're you're um, in this heat, likely uh, needing to take a few more breaks. But cer- exactly. certainly not with two others running around. Are you just- useless? But go. Yeah, but we just, uh, no, we just plan on keeping on adding to our garden, um, you know, uh, doing some more landscaping here and there. And we are, we we have a list mile long, you know, we just bought the house less than a year ago. And even if you've owned a house for 20 years, that list doesn't get any shorter. So, um, so we're just kind of chipping away at it and doing what we do. We're not going to be intentionally adding anything to, you know, kind of take a jab at that neighbor or anything to completely honest, we keep to ourselves. And we're going to yeah. keep it like that. So, uh, And do you know who, who the neighbor is? I mean, uh, or, or do you have... Oh, yes, as, we, know, definitely, okay. we definitely know who it is. All right. Well, no Halloween candy for them. Nonetheless, no. Christine, I thought it was a really interesting story, and I think the conclusion of it is even better. So uh, you do you. Um, best of luck to you with the uh, birth of your third child, and uh, good luck. Take some, uh, take some well-deserved breaks. Great. Well, thank you so very much for taking an interest in all of this. We really appreciate it. Well, let them let us know if they come back. Sure. <laughs> put you back on. All right, Christina. Thank you very much. That's uh, Christina Calvary uh, joining us. And um, you know, this to me is just about complete overreach uh, by the municipality. It, it just is so stupid on one complaint, one complaint. And we hear about these stories because so many little issues with these cities that you would think, you know, there are a lot bigger issues at play right now than this kind of crap. Come on, do better. Not necessary. Waste of resources. We really need to get to the history um, of this country and the contributions that Indigenous people have made to the development of this country. And I think that that will go a long way in helping all Canadians understand the true history of our country here. That is the voice of Ndintelka Pukin. She's the co-chair of First Nations, Métis and Inuit Education Association of Ontario. And uh, when the kids go back to school, there will be changes to the curriculum when it comes to what they learn in Indigenous issues. And up until now, it has not been much. And it's going to evolve, certainly as these residential graves are revealed across this country, including here in Ontario, where there were 18 residential schools. But why has it taken so long to make these changes? Because there were recommendations for Indigenous education, which were put out in the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Report. And to date, barely any of it has actually gotten into the curriculum. Why? Paul Bennett is Director of Schoolhouse Consulting, also author of The State of the System, a reality check on Canada's schools. And we talk every couple of weeks doing a on our schools. Good to have you, Paul. Nice to be back. Why has it taken so long? I mean, if these recommendations have been put out there, I mean, it, I'm kind of asking a rhetorical question. It, it just, to me, it's just stupidity and laziness, and we only seem to to act when we have to react. Um, you know, why has it taken so long to put any of these recommendations into the curriculum? Curriculum change 
proceeds at a glacial pace for the most part. Even after you've got uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission report in 2015 and a call to action 62.1, which requires all schools to include the history of residential schools, treaties, and the contributions of Aboriginal peoples, uh, it's required to be a mandatory a requirement for all K-12 students. It's a national requirement. Every provincial authority has approved it. They are beginning to implement curriculum changes, and it takes forever. First of all, the first phase is to get it into the curriculum, to get it adopted. And the second phase is to convince the teachers to integrate it into what they do in the classroom. And that's often what happens. It goes falls apart between the implement between the proposed curriculum and the implemented and received curriculum with kids. Okay, but is this an issue that the boards are kind of dragging their feet and not pushing teachers, or is this an issue that unions are pushing back um, and slowing the process down, or both? I think Ontario is doing reasonably well, let's be fair. The um, Historica just ranked all of the history curricula using one of its criteria being how effectively has um, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit perspectives, how effective have they been in integrated into the curriculum. They gave Ontario an A+. They looked at all of the curriculum developed between 2013 and 2018. They found it exemplary. They found it um, reflective of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission recommendations. They suggested that it even had uh, Indigenous perspectives integrated into the curriculum. They basically said that there was everything was in place to ensure that kids did receive this. Now, what we know, though, is there's it, something gets lost in the translation. And let me just cite for you what happens um, when it gets to teachers. The teachers um, are essentially comfortable with their existing curriculum, and it takes a lot to convince them to change it. They get very set in their ways. There are three reasons that teachers cite in the research why they are reluctant or hesitant to bring in changes along this line. First of all, they say that it's too complex. There are too many different indigenous peoples and there's such a com complexity. And these societies are so complex that uh, multifaceted that if you generalize, you become, you wash out all of the distinctions. A second mm -hmm. thing they, they say is that um, only indigenous people are authentic and equipped to deliver these lessons. And we're nervous. We don't know how to do it. We don't know enough about it. And the third one, which I, I think is interesting as a defense mechanism, is teachers, when they're asked in surveys, why aren't you doing this? They simply say, well, if we prioritize indigenous perspectives, then what, other, what are we leaving out? Because all perspectives deserve equal treatment. And so the most common reaction, and this is, not, um, this is not the official reaction, it's when you poll teachers and you ask, why aren't you implementing this? You hear things like, uh, well, we're uncertain about what to teach and how to teach it. We don't have the expertise and there, there aren't the resources. All of these things um, come into play and ensure that we're not actually implementing what's yeah. in the formal documents.
I mean, if we don't have the experts on the Holocaust, what we do is we turn to Holocaust survivors. If we really think outside the box, you know, or we, we turn to a soldier who can explain their time, uh, you know, at war to understand Remembrance Day. Where there's a will poll, there is a way. It just doesn't seem like there is has been a lot of will um, until now, now that we, um, you know, can't look away at what is being unearthed with these residential schools. That's a great suggestion. There are elders yeah. and those who are well-placed in the indigenous uh, communities that would Kids be would love it. willing to come yeah. talk just as the Holocaust education uh, uh, has achieved in a lot of the schools. I'll, I'll just, there's a caveat though. There's a cautionary note here. Uh, they've done some studies on what do you get out of Holocaust education? And you know what they get? They get a visceral reaction. This is horrible. This is terrible. Um, we should never let it happen again. But when they ask teachers and students well, where, how did it happen? Um, what contributed to it? Uh, what's the context? How many, how, many, um, how many people were affected? They find there's not a whole lot of knowledge. So what I have been arguing for is a deeper and richer understanding of the context. And uh, mm -hmm. if you'll permit me, I'll just give you an explanation of what I think should be in the curricula and how it should be approached yeah. uh, to yeah. get through, to crack through this resistance. I see there will be there's three phases over time that we need to impart to children uh, through their teachers. Well, first of all, there's dispossession. That's the loss of land, incursions, and um, the loss of Aboriginal title, and um, it's the inherent rights of Indigenous peoples. The second phase was subjugation: the Indian Act, treaties, reserves, mm -hmm. and residential schools. The third phase was marginalization. After they graduate from the schools or they go back to their reserves, they flounder, they find a hostile white society, they're not welcome. They either find other things to get involved with, criminality, alcoholism, or they return to the cities and they become part of the urban poverty problem and they're called yeah. non-status Indians. So these are three things. And I, I'll give you one video. Your, your listeners should watch this video. It's very short. It's called The Ballad of Crowfoot. It was actually from 1968. It's a song by Willie Dunn. It does it better than I ever could telling that story, that narrative. It's shocking. It's upsetting even now. So mm -hmm. what we're in now is a phase of reconciliation, which is, begins with recognition and acceptance. We're beyond tolerance. We need to make changes at every level of society. And I think it's finally uh, dawning on people that it can't be postponed any longer. Yeah, and I, and I think kids are very curious about it. And I think if there's a curiosity there, you, you strike while it's there. And, um, and certainly it's something I think a lot of kids could share with their parents who are also realizing, boy, I, I didn't learn any of this either. So there is actually a lesson, I think, um, that goes right across the generations. You know, like if my little boy's learning about it, I'm going to be curious too because I didn't learn a lot about residential schools. So, I, I, you know, if they think outside the box on this, they could do a lot with it, I think, you know. They certainly could. And, you know, I'm uh, more hopeful than I was. I think it took a shock. Often that's mm. what it takes, a shock. It's almost like shock treatment, and people begin to realize it. But it could wear off, and I think we mm. need longer-term strategies for integrating it into the curriculum, weaving it into everything we do, um, because it, it looks like an add-on or it looks like it's grafted yeah. on the existing curricula sometimes. And that's one of the factors that causes its resistance. 
But I, I'm more hopeful than I was. But it does take a shock to uh, awaken people and get them attuned to the changes that need to happen. Well, we'll see what they come up with. But nonetheless, we'll keep talking about it. Paul, always appreciate your insight into this, because I know that this is a particular area of expertise for you. So I thank you for it. Thank you very much. That is Paul Bennett, who is a director of Schoolhouse Consulting, also the author of a book, if you're looking at the state of our system in education, a reality check on Canada's schools. You can uh, give that a read, but certainly knows an awful lot because he wrote his thesis on residential schools and, and these things. So he knows an actual a lot about this. So we'll continue picking his brain on that. Hey, thanks for listening. You, of course, can join us live 6.30 Monday through Friday right here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Globe News Radio. Yeah!